Here is the shift that I am inviting people to make. Stop thinking about DEI and anti-racism as like a separate initiative. That is really the key, right? When we think of DEI and anti-racism work as like a separate thing that we have to do, right? Like another initiative, another training, then it's easy to feel fatigued because you start to feel like that work is taking away from the work that you're supposed to be doing. Instead, your anti-racism work should be an integrated part of your business all the time. It shouldn't be an extra thing. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch of extra meetings or extra trainings, but having an approach to all of your work that factors or accounts for diversity, equity, and inclusion and anti-racism, it becomes just how you do business. It's not a separate thing. It's just the way that you do business is in an equitable, anti-racist way. All of your decisions account for that. It's integrated into your conversations. And that's what happens when you start practicing with centering these things as values and the way that you run your company. That makes all the difference. It's, it's really not an extra step. It has to just be foundational to just how you work. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equity, equality, and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. The other day, I was running a workshop with a senior leadership team, and one of the leaders asked me if he should provide critical race training to his team. And he was worried that if he did, it might open a whole can of worms. And who knows what other DEI training he might have to undertake. When will it end, he asked me. When will all this DEI stuff finally be over? For me, the way this leader was thinking about diversity, equity and inclusion is the problem that we need to fix. Diversity, equity and inclusion are outcomes of workplace cultures that value difference. A leader's job is to build and maintain cultures of value difference because this is what it means to lead. Valuing difference is a practice. Anti-racism, anti-ableism, anti-classism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, anti-transphobia are all practices. Educational programs, workplace training, books, podcasts and courses are all the resources that we need to build our muscle when it comes to practicing valuing difference. There's no end to this work because this is how workplaces need to function on a daily basis. When we don't treat valuing difference as a practice, we don't engage in the necessary action needed to truly create workplace cultures that are diverse, equitable and inclusive. In his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi says that racist and anti-racist are like peelable name tags that are placed and replaced based on what someone is doing or not doing, supporting or expressing in each moment. These are not permanent tattoos. No one becomes a racist or anti-racist. We can only strive to be one or the other. So what can we do within each of our organisations to strive towards anti-racism? To help us with that question, Trudy Lebron, author of the Anti-Racist Business Book, will be joining us on the show today to discuss how organisations can make anti-racism a fundamental way of working. We asked Trudy to start us off by sharing what an anti-racist workplace would look like and feel like. I think it feels like 
a place where people can show up as they are. And I know that's one of those like catchphrases that like people say a lot, like show up as you are, but really meaning it, like being able to come to work as your full self, the way that you look, the, your personality, right? Like the way that you are and being respected and honored for that. Also, it looks like being able to speak up and advocate for yourself and your role without fear of retribution, For example, if you feel like your workload is too heavy or you feel like you were passed up for an opportunity or you feel like somebody is treating you different or is responding to you different because of your identity or because of whatever power dynamics, that you can speak up and have it addressed and not fear that by speaking up, it's going to get worse. So many people work under those circumstances where they don't speak up for themselves, they don't advocate for themselves because they know that if they do that it's just going to get worse or nothing's going to happen. They're not going to be taken seriously. So in anti-racist environments, people know that how they feel is going to matter to other people and the experiences that they're having are going to matter to their other team members and that those things will be addressed. It also looks like that you can have one full-time job and not need to work a whole bunch of other jobs and be able to meet your quality of life, your basic needs, right? Like that you're compensated adequately. You're not being taken advantage of. You get to use your vacation time without coming back to work and having two weeks of work to catch up on, which never feels like a vacation, right? That we're honoring that the work-life balance, that we're not seeing people just as producers of labor, but that we're seeing people as whole humans who have the time that they spend at work and also the time that they spend in their own life and that we respect those boundaries. It's a holistic approach to the way that we lead and interact with our team members and create environments that are inclusive and liberatory and collaborative. Here is the shift that I am inviting people to make. Stop thinking about DEI and anti-racism as like a separate initiative. That is really the key, right? When we think of DEI and anti-racism work as like a separate thing that we have to do, right? Like another initiative, another training, then it's easy to feel fatigued because you start to feel like that work is taking away from the work that you're supposed to be doing. Instead, your anti-racism work should be an integrated part of your business all the time. It shouldn't be an extra thing. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch of extra meetings or extra trainings, but having an approach to all of your work that factors or accounts for diversity, equity, and inclusion and anti-racism, it becomes just how you do business. It's not a separate thing. It's just the way that you do business is in an equitable, anti-racist way. All of your decisions account for that. It's integrated into your conversations. And that's what happens when you start practicing with centering these things as values in the way that you run your company. That makes all the difference. It's, It's really not an extra step. It has to just be foundational to just how you work. We've talked on many other podcast episodes about the concept of intersectionality as originally coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. In particular, it's clear that there's often a compounding of inequality experienced by people with multiple areas of difference. But did you know that according to CIPD, which is the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development here in the UK, reports indicate that where a person has two protected characteristics like race and gender or race and sexual orientation, the individual will feel mostly discriminated against because of their race. 
And some reports have demonstrated that while shifts have been made towards gender equity, the benefit of these shifts are felt the most by white women. It appears from reports that one of the difficulties in making progress is that people teams find the issue of race one of the most difficult to deal with in the workplace. CIPD says that these difficulties stem from a lack of lived experience of a racial group different to theirs, the discomfort people face in having conversations about race and the lack of external support and guidance. To help us with understanding how racial discrimination shows up at work, Trudy shares some common examples. We know that in institutions, black and brown folks are less likely to be promoted. They're less likely to be hired. They're more likely to be earning less than their white counterparts, right? So those things are really, really obvious. But I'm really interested in some of the more subtle ways that oppression and inequity kind of manifest in workplaces. And one of the things, like, for example, that I am talking about a lot with my clients is around the way that we hire the way that we lead, not just who we hire, but the process that we take, right? The requirements that we have. For example, if we're requiring that people have master's degrees for jobs that really don't require them, like there's not a a real reason why there would be an educational requirement on a job in many cases, that alone starts to create an inequity that is more likely to impact Black and brown folks. Same thing with not listing compensation on job applications or having very secretive practices around the way that you promote people or evaluate people or pay people. When there's a lot of secrecy or lack of transparency, you can be certain that there's going to be more inequity. So those are ways, the way that we supervise, the way that we pay, the way that we evaluate people. The way that we conduct meetings, who gets the most airtime? Like, are we evaluating whose ideas are lifted up and whose are pushed to the side? All the ways that we're interacting at work in our social environments really need to be interrogated to start to understand if there are racial inequities or not. Based on the history that we have, it's more than likely that there are inequities. If you haven't done anything to make sure that there's not, you can probably guess that there are because so many of our unconscious biases are influencing the way that we interact with people. And unless we're really interrogating that, we can just be certain that those things are manifesting. Simply getting people to recognize that others are excluded at work or have a different lived experience of working life because of their race can be difficult. For example, a 2017 research study in the United States by NPR finds that 50% of white Americans believe that discrimination is as bad for whites as it is for people of color. In addition, while a majority of Americans still seem to understand that hard work doesn't guarantee success, A full 50% of white people believe that people of colour would be more successful if they only tried harder. Overcoming the denial of racism is just the first step when it comes to people's anti-racist journey, as Trudy explains. The first step is to really acknowledge that this is an issue and that people need to be committed, right? I am not in the business of convincing people that inequity is real or that racism is real. There really has to be a will in an institution for people to take on this work seriously. And if there's not, it's going to just be a lot of optics and check the box kind of efforts. But if people are really interested in becoming anti-racist organizations, they really have to make a commitment long-term to the work and understand that 
anti-racism work is not about hiring someone to come in and do a training or hiring a chief diversity officer or having like an equity initiative, but that this has to touch every single component of your company and every single person in your company, that everybody has a responsibility to create an inclusive, equitable, anti-racist environment. And so if you can get there, leaders in a company can start to understand that and really embrace that, then we can get some real deep work done because people understand then that it's not a quick fix, right? That this is going to be long-term work that you do over time consistently, that it's kind of imperfect, right? That it's, it's a practice. Once you're there, I definitely always suggest starting with values. Every one of the clients that I have ever worked with, we start with values because traditionally values have been used as something that really kind of feels like a marketing campaign. Like you go to a website and people have their values listed on their website, or you go into an organization and you see the values on the wall or in the, you know, outside the elevator. And they're just there because they're supposed to be there, but they're not really operationalized into the business. And so starting with your values and really asking yourself, what are the values of this business for real? Not what they should be not what we think they should be because we're a company and we want to grow, but what do we stand for at the end of the day? And then using those values to make decisions in your business. So for example, if a company says we prioritize equity or we value equity or we value fun or we value community, what does that mean when you're making decisions like How do we hire someone? How do we reflect the value of equity in our hiring process? How do we reflect our value of equity or anti-racism when we have to do some kind of corrective action, for example, or when we have to make a tough decision that is uncomfortable? How do we reflect our values consistently, especially when we have to make difficult decisions that are uncomfortable? So leading with your values and really getting clear and training other people to be able to ask those same questions and kind of hold each other accountable to the values of the organization will take you quite far. Then starting to look at really every domain of your company. So looking at HR, looking at compensation, looking at the way that you conduct team meetings or supervisory meetings with your team members thinking about how you offer professional development opportunities to your team, looking at every domain of your company to start asking questions and and taking a measurement to see, is there equity here? Is there representation here? Are people being treated the same or differently? If they're being treated differently, how does that break down around racial lines? We have to be bold enough to really look at that data very specifically. We spent so much time, especially I remember, you know, being a kid in school in the 80s and 90s and being told like not to see color and treat everybody the same. And and a lot of those narratives kind of carry, have carried forth into our adulthood and into the workplace. And so if we're not willing to kind of look at things like compensation or disciplinary action or or attendance or turnover or applicants and kind of look at that against the racial component of it. So like we've had to lay off 50 people over the last five years, let's say you're a big company, how many of those people were white versus people of color? 
right? Like actually looking at that data, looking at compensation and saying, okay, what's our compensation package look like? What percentage of people are at the higher end of their salary earnings? What percentage are at the lower end? How does that break down across race or gender or whatever, any kind of, on any of these kinds of dynamics? So we have to be really willing to kind of sit in that uncomfortable information and do the things that we have been taught not to do, right? Like see color, look at race, really kind of confront this information so that we can start to fix it. If a leader's job is to build a workplace that values difference, then anti-racism is a foundational practice in making that happen. A good place to start, as suggested by Time's Up, is to consider adding anti-racism to your core values and then operationalise those values by evaluating all of your policies and decision-making processes through an anti-racist lens. Another suggestion they have is to encourage and empower everyone to speak out against any racist workplace practices and to adopt a zero-tolerance policy for this kind of behaviour. Here, Trudy shares with us her perspective on what leaders can do to make anti-racism a fundamental way of working. What I want to see from more leaders is that they are approaching their role as a leader, as not just being in charge of people, that they're just not like the boss and you, you know, the boss says what to do and people do it. Your responsibility to the business is to manage outcomes and to make sure that the outcomes of the business are achieved, but that you also have a responsibility to your team and that you're kind of protecting the work environment for your team. And so you want to reach these outcomes, but not at the cost of overworking or being oppressive or having a dominant approach, a patriarchal approach to the way that you talk to people or the way that you ask people to be accountable to things, right? I also want leaders to be secure that they can ask people to be accountable. What we're seeing a lot of now in our company is that leaders, because they don't want to be oppressive, they kind of take this hands-off approach to leadership, but that means that they're not leading. And so the team feels like they're not being supported, that they're not sure what they're supposed to do, that people are just kind of making decisions because nobody's like kind of checking on them. And that leads to a really disorganized work environment. So leaders need to find the balance between leading a team that is productive, where outcomes have to be done, where people need to be communicating, and there has to be a high level of execution in business because you have obligations to the company and to your clients or your customers or whoever your various stakeholders are, but that there is also this responsibility to protect your team and to protect the culture and the environment that they're working within. I think that leaders, even if their supervisor is not as liberatory, that they have an opportunity to kind of buffer some of the more toxic elements of workplace culture within their teams. I definitely know that in my various roles when I was working in nonprofits, I did a lot of that buffering. I would have unrealistic work expectations and hostile and toxic kind of supervision and leadership, but I didn't turn that around to the people that I led, right? Like I made sure that to the extent possible that I was not replicating those kinds of ways of being, even though that's quite natural. Like if you're feeling pressure from one place that you're placing the pressure elsewhere. So making sure that again, to that extent possible, that I was making sure that my team was able to 
work in a way that was a little more easeful and collaborative and open and shared decision-making, even if I didn't get that benefit from my supervisors. Finally, Trudy shares one action that everyone can take to make anti-racism a daily practice. I really think that the easiest thing to implement without a whole bunch of other kind of training and support is to start with this exercise around values, like really sitting with your organizational values. We're talking small business. Sometimes it's your personal values that are just kind of being transferred into your business. Really sit with those and ask yourself how those are being reflected in your business day to day. Right. If you value equity, where in your business is that showing up or how are you solving problems centering that value? I think that is one of the fastest ways and most applicable ways, again, without the need to have a lot of support or making a decision that's going to have a bunch of other subsequent decisions that are going to be made. Really starting to practice operationalizing your values day to day in your company is a great place to start. At the beginning of today's episode, Michelle raised a common question that managers often ask when it comes to tackling anti-racism at work, which is how much should we be talking about historical racism and the way it shaped our institutions at work? Should we discuss things like critical race theory and how applicable are they to our workplaces? For anyone looking at these questions in their organisations, we thought it might help to give a quick explainer of critical race theory. According to an article published by Charterworks, Critical race theory was developed in the 1970s as an academic framework and it highlights the intersections between race and American legal systems. It's since grown into a movement to eradicate white supremacy within institutions. The article points out that while it's been discussed mostly in a classroom context, much of the current day opposition to critical race theory is deeply connected to the workplace. So if you're thinking about critical race theory in the context of what it might mean for you and your workforce, Glenn Guyton has these four recommendations. One, don't confuse critical race theory with workplace diversity, equity and inclusion training. The training you need in your workplace should be closely aligned with the organisational mission, vision and goals. Don't let fear, social media or TV talking heads dictate your workplace DEI processes. Two, believe that racism exists. Be honest, racial categories were created to categorise groups distribute resources and manage power. The natural outgrowth of that is racism, the system misuse of power based on race. It doesn't mean that you or your leaders are racist. Anytime we create systems, some will abuse those systems. Race is a social system. Three, manage privilege and manage your team. Ensure that your workplace systems lean towards equity. Diversity is not your ultimate workplace goal. Reach for an equitable and inclusive environment where all can compete and thrive. You want your best and brightest to believe that they'll have equal access to the rewards of hard work if they put in the work. And four, give voice to all your employees. Workplace leaders must understand how to effectively communicate with people from diverse backgrounds and cultural communication styles. Once you begin to listen to those diverse voices, you'll inspire creativity and positive workplace change. A quick one before you go, if you love our podcast and you want more, then hit subscribe now wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Your support means so much.
Thank you for tuning into our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or maybe being a guest on the show, then you can reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.